afternoon. And welcome to the first Science Sunday of 2020, the first Science Sunday of the decade. Um, my name is Hannah Shabbat, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry here at Ohio State, and I'll be your host for this event. Uh, for those of you who are new to Science Sundays, this is a monthly event put on by the College of Arts and Sciences here at Ohio State, where we bring world-class scientists in to Columbus to tell you about the science that they're doing, why they're doing it, and why it's important. And we think, as scientists, we think that it's really important that you know what's going on here and you know what's going on really around the country in terms of, of leading, leading cutting edge science. So today we have a very special treat for you. Uh, today we have our very own uh, Professor Amanda Hammond. Uh, Amanda is a member of the OSU Comprehensive Cancer Center at the James. She's also an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. Uh, and she is, has really won a number of awards indicating that not only is she just a rising star, she's already become a star in the, the relatively short time that she's been an independent scientist. Uh, Amanda received her bachelor's degree from Cornell University and her PhD from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, uh, working with Jonathan Swedler uh, doing mass spectrometry, which I'm sure she'll tell you more about. Uh, after her PhD, Amanda went on to do a postdoc at the National Institutes of Health, National Cancer Institute uh, in Washington, D.C., where she studied the cancer biology of colorectal cancer. Following that, Amanda began her independent career at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, where she was promoted, and then we had the opportunity in 2017 to recruit Amanda to come to Ohio State, and she's been here since the January 2018, so it's been almost exactly two years uh, since we had Amanda here. Amanda's won a number of awards. I certainly don't have time to tell you about all of them. A couple really notable ones. She recently won the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, the PCASE Award, and recipients are invited to go to the White House and actually meet the president uh, to receive the award. So Amanda's one of uh, a very small number of people who's actually won the award. Uh, she's also worldwide known. She was recently in the top 100 chemists within her field across the entire world. So she's really made headway on a lot of different areas of research. I'm sure she'll tell you about some of that today. Uh, I don't want to steal any more of Amanda's time, but a couple notes before we start. First of all, uh, if you could please hold your questions until the end. Amanda will be happy to take questions at the end of her talk. And if you don't get your question in at the end of the talk, there's a reception, a more informal reception afterwards. And while it's normally held on the second floor of the traditions room, today it will be a little different. The reception will be held upstairs on the third floor in the cartoon room. Without further ado, Amanda, please welcome Amanda. Thank you very much, Hannah, and uh, thank you for that glowing introduction, as well as for the opportunity to speak to you today. Um, I do give a lot of talks, but I've never given a talk quite like this, so I'm very excited to have the opportunity to come here today and to get to talk to you, especially you know members of our own community about. Um, and I tell you a little bit about some of the work that we're doing, but also talk uh, quite a bit about some technologies that are you know, on the horizon for patients uh, facing cancer. Okay, a couple of disclaimers. I feel I should, should start off. Medical talks are often started with disclaimers, so let me start with mine. Just to set the stage here, 
I want to let you know I am not an oncologist. I'm not an MD. Hannah went through my background, but I, I just want to reiterate this. Um, I do not treat patients, and I, and I can't, cannot give any clinical advice. Okay? <laughs> so you could say, well, then why is she qualified to give a talk, right? Okay. So um, let me give you, I know Hannah went through this, but let me tell you how I see it. Um, so I am, as I said, trained as a chemist. I'm flipping around. Do that. Is that better? Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. So I am trained as a chemist. Uh, my PhD is in analytical chemistry, specifically bioanalytical chemistry. And analytical chemistry is the flavor of chemistry where we figure out how to measure things. To carcinomas, they start as adeno, uh, adenomas, progress to adenocarcinomas, and then go on to carcinomas. All right, so cancer is fundamentally a disease of cell division, all right? Think about yourself as a little baby. You start off quite small to make it to the size you are today. I don't think we have many children in the room, so we're mostly adults. There were an awful lot of cell divisions that occurred to make you, you. And on, on, uh, in general, humans are composed of trillions of cells, and I wanna focus today just on the human cells. I know it's really popular right now to talk about the microbiome and all the, <clears throat> all the other exciting things that live inside you, right? But for right now, I wanna just focus on the homo sapien cells, the ones that, that are you, right? There are trillions of cells that make, make up you. And all of those cells divide, okay, so that a person can grow. Some of them will also uh, divide to um, fulfill various types of uh, functions. So for example, the cells within, your within the crypts in your colon, those need to continually divide for that to work. Cancer is a disease of normal cells dividing when they shouldn't, and in particular dividing to the extent that they start to encroach on other tissues. So they spread out and start going into other surrounding tissues in the body. So you could ask the question, how many times should a cell divide? And this has been well studied. So in the 1970s, there was a guy named uh, Leonard Hayflick, and uh, he was the cell culture guy, if you will, at the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia. So he maintained the cell culture room for all the other researchers. And while he was doing this, he also kept really meticulous notes and published a series of papers where he first articulated the number of times that a normal human cell should divide. And on, or, on, on average, human cells should divide about 40 times, 40 to 50, or 40 to 45. The reason for this we now know is because of the telomeres with each cell division. The telomeres get just a little bit shorter. This was best articulated by Elizabeth Blackburn, Carol Greider, and Jack Sozdak. They won the 2009 Nobel Prize in Physiology for this. What happens is that with each cell division, the telomeres get just a little bit shorter, and when they get quite short, there's a signal inside the cell telling the cell, okay, stop dividing. However, oh, and once they stop dividing, they can become senescent or they can commit suicide. Now, unfortunately, some cells will ignore this, and we call these cells immortal cells, all right? And uh, these cells ignore the Hayflick limit, they keep on dividing, they ignore their telomere, they ignore a whole bunch of other signals that, I, can, I don't have time to go into all the different signals, but there's a lot of both intracellular and extracellular signaling that goes on, and they will continue to, to, to um, divide in perpetuity. So the most famous example of this are the HeLa cells. The HeLa cells were from a cervical cancer that uh, a patient named Henrietta Lacks developed in 1950. This was an incredibly aggressive cancer. Henrietta Lacks went into her surgeon, or went into to her oncologist, 
And while she was under anesthesia, some samples were taken from her without her consent uh, in 1951, and these were used to start the Gila cell line. So the name Gila is the first two letters of her first and last name. And there's a wonderful book, if you um, are interested. This book was published in 2011 from Rebecca Skloot, and it describes both the advances in science that have come about because of the cell line, but then also the ethical mistreatment of the Lax family, because so much is now known about the genetics of, of the Lax family without their consent uh, because uh, uh, these cells were taken. So these cells will continue to proliferate in cell culture, and the HeLa cell line today remains the cell line that is used the most uh, for cancer research. But it is uh, far from the only cell line that is used. There are thousands of different cell lines that we can use as researchers. Uh, this right here is a graphical representation of what is called the NCI60, and these are 60 cell lines representing a number of, of uh, different primary sites that are commonly used by the National Cancer Institute to, to test new drugs. Okay, so these are all cell lines that will also continue to grow. Now I have to say the use of cell lines is becoming controversial these days because it is an artificial um, um, substitute, but uh, still today this has remained a, a valuable resource uh, for cancer uh, researchers. Okay, so I said cancer results from cell division. And in general, uh, humans and other mammals are all going to have cells that are about the same size. So if you think that you know, a little baby will start off and have all these cell div divisions to become an adult, you can also imagine that different size animals, if we all have the same cell size, are going to have different numbers of cell divisions, which brings us to the very important question of whether elephants get cancer. Okay, so imagine for a second there's an elephant on the stage, so I better move, I better move over, right? Because elephants are really big, okay? Um, and an elephant has the same, I'm gonna go like this, an elephant has the same number of cells, or has, um, their cells are the same size as my cells. But an elephant is so much larger that obviously an elephant must have had many, 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 many more cell divisions to have reached this massive size, right? Is everyone okay with my logic? Okay. So, would you hypothesize, let me have everyone in the room be a scientist here, would you therefore hypothesize that elephants get more cancer if they have more cell divisions? Okay, hold that in your head and we'll return to that in like five minutes, okay? <laughs> this is my teaser. Okay, let me teach you just a little bit more biology about cell division and we'll get back to elephants. So cell division is fundamentally a process where the, the genetic material in the cell is first replicated and then divided. Okay. Each cell has chromosomes that have to be, as I said, replicated and then pulled apart. And so with cancer, since cancer is a disease of cell division, there are two places, two primary places, where these types of errors can occur. So the first is if there is an error in the actual replication, and then the second is in this pulling apart process where the chromosomes all line up on the, on the spindles, if, when they are pulled apart, if they don't divide exactly equally that can also be problematic. So let's first look at errors in DNA replication. So the good news is that in general, DNA replication is an incredibly accurate process. So the DNA replication machinery that is present in the human cell makes a mistake approximately every 10 to 100 bases, okay? So that is 100 billion bases. One every 100 billion, it's going to make a mistake. And even if a mistake is made, uh, there are various other mechanisms to catch it and you know, copyright, and, or, or copy, uh, I'm missing the word right now, to fix the problem, okay? <laughs> um, 
But if you think about this, humans have three billion base pairs, and I just told you most of those cells are going to divide 40 times. So eventually, a problem can persist. When there is an error, we call this a mutation. And what can happen is if you have a mutation, and if the protein is then expressed, so genes are transcribed into RNA, which is translated into protein, those proteins uh, can have an error in them. And in cancer, there are two main places where this can be problematic, two main classes of genes that we worry about. So if a mutation occurs in a really critical gene, it can affect the function of that resulting protein. The two main classes that we worry about are a class of genes called oncogenes. We're going we're to use a, a simplified analogy here that if you're driving a car, we'll say that oncogenes, and, and if the movement of the car is, is um, growth of a cell, think of oncogenes as the gas. Okay? So if you press down the gas, your car goes faster. Right? You, need, you need both of these. Tumor suppressors are a class of genes that are the brakes. Okay? They are the ones, when they produce the protein, they give the signal to the cell, slow down growth, or perhaps you know, uh, become senescent, et cetera. So these are the ones that speed up growth. These are the ones that slow down growth. So tumor suppressors, the analogy here, would they, they would be the brakes. You need both of these to drive the car. Um, but if one of these gets mutated, it can cause a real problem and have this, the, uh, the gene, pardon me, the cells continue to divide um, without um, stopping. I'm explaining all this to you because it all um, is going to come back. Don't worry, we're all gonna, we're gonna get back to the elephants. Okay, so, all right, I know, you're all really curious, right? Okay, so really quickly, let me describe to you, how many of you have heard of the gene P53? Have you heard of this gene? Okay. It's the most important, it's arguably the most important gene you have in your body, okay? So if somebody ever asks you the question, what's the most important address in your entire genome? It is arguably 17p.13.1, okay? That is the genomic locus, you don't have to remember that, but that is the genomic locus for the P53 gene. So the P53, it's called 53 because it weighs 53 Daltons, so someone was really creative when they named it. Uh, it has another name, and it is called the guardian of the genome. This particular gene encodes a protein, also called P53, that is produced as a homotetramer. That means four copies of the same protein. And what this protein does is it goes along the newly synthesized DNA, and it scans the DNA looking for those errors we talked about. If P53 finds an error, it can recruit the machinery to fix the error, or if the error is too large in the DNA, it signals to the cell to, to undergo uh, suicide, okay? So the cell will then automatically uh, shut down and die. This is why P53 is the most, arguably the most important gene in, uh, in the human genome, and it therefore would come as no surprise that it is mutated in over half of all human cancers. So, a mutation in P53 that renders it non-functional is, is uh, a very, um, it, it changes the prognosis for a cancer patient. I'm telling you all of this because we now need to return to the question of the elephants. So let's back up and remember elephants have many, many more cell divisions. We said that cancer is a disease of cell division, so therefore we as a group hypothesized that elephants would get more cancer, right? If we just use that, turns out elephants almost never get cancer. Okay, and I'm using this example in part because it's fun to talk about elephants, but also I'm trying to convey that cancer is very, very complicated and uh, multiple different factors uh, weigh in. 
So it turns out there is a, uh, a theory right now in evolutionary biology called Pato's paradox, which describes a lack of correlation between body mass and cancer risk. And it turns out, as I said, elephants do not get cancer. And for a long time, we couldn't figure out why elephants weren't getting cancer. And we don't definitively know. But there is now a hypothesis that came out um, in the last few years. It turns out elephants have 20 times the amount of p53 that humans do. So we have one copy in our genome. We're very dependent on that one copy. Elephants, throughout evolution, have created an additional 19 copies. And as a result, the hypothesis is that is why they do not get cancer. Now, what's interesting about this is that blue whales are also reported to not get cancer at all. And when we look at the blue whale genome, they don't have any p53 at all. So what's going on, we don't really know. I should, I should also add, um, mice also have one copy of p53, the same as human beings. Mice get cancer more often than humans do on average. So humans, you know, we're at 30 to 40% of humans will end up with cancer. Mice are a little higher than that. Um, and so uh, uh, scientists have gone ahead and added multiple copies of p53 to mice just to see what would happen. And what happens is the mice age very, very quickly, okay? Because cancer and aging are kind of two sides of the same coin, okay? So it's, it's an interesting uh, question. So adding p53 to humans is not necessarily the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the golden solution for us all. Okay, let's do a little bit more uh, basic biology and then we'll start looking at methods to detect cancer. So I very quickly want to show you also that chromosomes, um, the other causes of um, cell division going awry is if this process right here doesn't work, so the chromosomes all lined up, line up along the um, mitotic spindle. They actually self-organize in terms of gene density. It's amazing how they do this. And then they pull apart, and you need absolutely equal division of the chromosomes between the two cells. So every human has 46, well, most humans have 46 chromosomes. You got 23 from your mom and 23 from your dad, right? And so those 46 double to be 92, and when they pull apart, you want that um, equal uh, division right there. If you don't have that nice equal division over time, aneuploidy can result. So up here, we again have uh, 46 chromosomes. If, for example, um, you have mutations in the genes that control the cell division process and the genes, or pardon me, the chromosomes get pulled apart in an unequal fashion, what can happen over time is that abnormal numbers of chromosomes can build up in the cell. And when you think that each of these chromosomes encodes genes that then are going to be transcribed into mRNA, translated into proteins, this can also have uh, very deleterious effects. Okay, so let's start talking about how cancer is diagnosed. I found as I was putting together this talk, there was so much I wanted to tell you that I had to kind of trim things down. So I've chosen to not talk about some of the more common methods that I think you'll already be familiar with, like CT scans, MRIs, et cetera. Those are all still used quite a bit, obviously, in the hospital. I'm going to talk about molecular strategies that are far along in the scientific process, but not necessarily available to the public yet, okay? So before I do that, I need to show you just a little bit of uh, how solid cancers are diagnosed right now so that we can look at the methods that are being used that will be complementary to these methods. So we'll start off. So pathologists, these are kind of the doctor's doctor. Uh, they help make the informed decision. They're incredibly well-trained to be able to look at the cells that are present in a solid tumor mass and be able to assess uh, the, the, the stage, uh, the grade, um, 
and, and also whether or not uh, it's cancer at all. So the way that this works is that a biopsy sample, so for example, there's a biopsy sample right here, will be embedded in a polymer, okay? So you can think of this as kind of a, we can call it a plastic, okay? So it's gonna be embedded in a solid substrate. It is then put on a device called a cryostat, and I apologize if this is offensive, but it looks like the, the, the meat slicer in the deli. Sorry, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, but what happens is that there's a, a blade that will come and take a very thin section off of the edge of this block. So, and by thin, I mean 10 to 12 microns at a time. So very thin sections. And so you can see these thin sections coming off. These sections are then placed onto a glass slide, stained with some kind of dye, and uh, visualized by microscopy. And so um, what will this look like? This is the most common type of stain that uh, pathologists will use. This is known as H&E, so hematoxylin and eosin. Uh, it works very well. You can see we're coming up on the 150th anniversary of H&E, so yeah, it works. Um, and H&E uh, &E staining is so common that it is actually automated in most uh, hospitals, okay? Uh, H&E are a pair of dyes, one is acidic and one is basic. And they are kind of, you can see they're kind of pink and purpley looking. And so what they do is they uh, selectively label different portions of the tissue. And as I said, pathologists are extremely well trained to be able to look at these kind of images and be able to uh, glean an enormous amount of information out of them. So H&E is the most common stain. There are many others available. I pulled this off the web. This is some random company. I'm not advocating this specific company. I just wanted to give you a sense of how many are available. So for example, if you wanted to look at lipids, uh, this is oil red staining. Uh, oil red would, would label all kinds of different lipids. So some of these stains are going to label entire classes of compounds. You can also get stains that are going to be selective to just individual molecules. These will be mostly antibody-based um, approaches. So there's a lot of different stains uh, that are available for pathologists. Okay, so what do the pathologists, what kind of information can they get out of these kind of stains? So for example, they can look at these images. I am not a pathologist, I'm not trained in this area, so for me, it, I wouldn't know how to read this, but a pathologist can look at this and say, huh, I see differences in cell shape, size, so this is generally known as morphology, and from that be able to label these areas as containing uh, cancer cells. They can also look at differences in molecular distribution, so again, using the, the stain, for example, like the, the oil red. So, as I said at the beginning, I come at this as a chemist, and specifically as an analytical chemist. Again, I like to measure things, that's what I do. Um, and so, uh, what I wanted to do in this talk was look at analytical chemistry methods that are going to complement these existing uh, approaches that already work quite well, but can we develop additional methods that would be helpful uh, for patients um, and for pathologists as they are diagnosing cancer? So um, as an analytical chemist, there's a number of different things we consider. I actually taught this this past week in my class. I'm teaching uh, intro to analytical chemistry here to the undergrads, some of whom are here today. Um, and so I just taught this in class. Whenever you're developing a new analytical method, especially for, for biomedical purposes, there are certain things uh, that you really want to think about. So first off, what will be the sample that you're going to be, to be looking at? And can it be possibly a non-invasive kind of sample? So instead of potentially needing something really invasive like bone marrow or cerebral spinal fluid, if you can make a medical diagnosis off, for example, urine or feces, something that human beings 
don't mind giving up, let's be honest, right? Um, that would be great, okay? So we're looking for things that are gonna be a little bit less um, invasive uh, for the patient. Obviously, we want methods that are fast. No one wants to wait weeks to find out their, their medical diagnosis, and then also methods that are sensitive. And in analytical chemistry, sensitivity refers to an ability of a method to discriminate changes in concentration. So we want to be able to tell the difference in the levels of the analyte. I will also start uh, introducing, we're gonna be looking also at methods that will reduce the need uh, to repeat cancer surgeries. So a lot of cancer surgeries, especially ones for resection where the entire tumor is being removed, need to be repeated. Um, and so we'll be looking at various molecular ways uh, that, that uh, we're, we're working or that the community is working to obtain better margins on, on tumors. Okay, so before I start talking about the cancer methods, I wanna first talk about one other clinical test that within the last few years has become available. So to give you a sense of how this can change things, uh, and that is the amniocentesis. So amniocentesis for many, many years was a method where a pregnant woman would have a needle put into her uterus um, the needle would be guided by, son by uh, sonogram to make sure that uh, obviously it did not come near the fetus. But obviously this is extremely invasive. It was quite painful. Um, and also it carried a 1% risk of miscarriage. Right? This is no longer done in the United States. Now what people can, can instead get, and this is a wonderful new development, is instead they can have a blood test to look at circulating free DNA from the fetus. So it was discovered in the last... 10 years or so, that the fetus will be shedding cells and, it'll, and the fetus will also be shedding uh, DNA. This can move through the placenta into the mother's bloodstream. And so if you take a blood uh, sample from a patient, from a pregnant patient, you can use this to examine the fetus uh, for aneuploidy. And so this very invasive method is now no longer used in the United States. Okay, so the methods I'm gonna talk about today are not quite at this point, but this is kind of what we'll have in mind as where we are heading. Okay, so we're gonna talk about three ways to measure molecules. Okay, so first, uh, sequencing DNA. Um, so we already saw that a little bit here with um, uh, the, the amniocentesis. So looking at genomes, uh, looking at methylation patterns, all kinds of changes that can occur in a DNA. Um, spectroscopic measurements, we have some spectroscopists in the audience here. Okay, with spectroscopy, you are shining light on a sample and then looking at um, how the light uh, is, is um, changed through the interaction with matter. And then finally, my personal favorite method to weigh things. So I am by nature a mass spectrometrist and mass spectrometry as we'll get to is uh, a way to be able to measure um, the, the weight of molecules, which can be extremely powerful. Okay, and we're gonna talk about methods, both liquid methods, okay? So these would be for the myelomas, leukemias, et cetera, and then also uh, solid tumor analysis by a couple different ways. So first up, we're gonna talk about um, some of the liquid methods. Okay, so I, I, when I first prepa prepared this talk, I started explaining DNA sequencing and I realized I was spending 10 minutes on that. And I figured DNA sequencing has been around long enough that probably many of you are familiar with it conceptually, even if you don't know all the nitty gritty Details, yeah, okay, Besma's nodding, thank you, okay. All right, so DNA sequencing is figuring out all the nucleotides in your sample and not just the composition but also the order in which they occur. For humans, that means looking at the three billion base pairs, so everyone's got a different genome and uh, figuring out all those different 
um, nucleotides in order is what we refer to as sequencing. There's been very large-scale efforts to sequence different tumor types. So the human genome was first sequenced in 2001, and within one year, the National Cancer Institute established the Cancer Genome Atlas to sequence all kinds of different tumors, and we'll take a look at how that's being used today. So just as we saw with the amniocentesis, where patients can give a blood sample, a pregnant patient can give a blood sample to figure out whether or not her fetus um, has aneuploidy. The same concept is now being applied to circulating tumor cells and circulating free DNA that is within um, the bloodstream of a patient, okay? Um, so you look at the, the blood for cancer biomarkers and in particular looking at DNA sequencing. So as I said, the Cancer Genome Atlas, you'll notice um, the NCI was very clever when they named this. So the uh, first four letters are the four nucleotides. I always thought that was extremely clever. Okay. Um, so the Cancer Genome Atlas over the last 18 years has sequenced 11,000 primary tumors. So there is a wide database, and this because this was funded by taxpayer dollars. This is all publicly available information. And so there are a number of different companies that are out there that are racing to make this a clinical test. The most prominent of which is a company named Grail. So in February of 2017, Grail published a manuscript in the journal Cell, which is a very well-respected scientific journal, stating that they would, they were developing this technology with circulating free DNA from tumors um, to be able to figure out um, whether or not a patient has, had, has cancer. This past October, actually on October 11th, at the American Society for Clinical Oncologists meeting, they presented a poster where they showed that they have finished a clinical trial of 15,000 patients representing 20 different types of carcinomas. And in this poster, they said that what they can predict with 99.3% accuracy if a patient has cancer and much more impressively where the cancer is. So they can pinpoint which of the 20 organs the, the malignancy um, uh, resides on. This is not public yet. Um, they also need to publish some peer-reviewed literature on this, especially in the wake of the Theranos scandal. Uh, the, the scientific community is, is very scared about, uh, well, not scared, uh, we're a little more hesitant to believe these claims without peer-reviewed science, so they need to, to, uh, they need to publish this and go through the peer review process. But as I said, at this meeting, uh, they made this claim of 99.3% accuracy from a single vial of blood to figure out the location of a carcinoma. So that's, that's quite impressive. Okay, so let's switch to spectroscopic methods. So spectroscopy, again, shining electromagnetic radiation on a sample and then looking at what energy is absorbed. Um, in case you haven't you know, taken a chemistry class just in the last few months, let me refresh um, everyone's memory real quick about the electromagnetic spectrum. I figured it was, it was worth going through this. Okay, so uh, light. Light exists as both a wave and a particle, right? And um, uh, microwaves are lower energy. These are the ones that cause, uh, well, it's in your microwave oven. It's cause water molecules to rotate. That's why your microwave works, right? Okay, higher energy ones like x-rays cause bond breaking. We're gonna focus right here on this portion, the infrared portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. If you shine light, infrared light, with that level of energy on a substance, that will cause vibrations in the bonds. Okay, so not enough to break them, but it'll cause vibrations. And so this is being used in a variety of different ways. We'll first look at a liquid uh, sample and then we'll look at some tumor margins. So this is Matt Baker. He is a professor at the University of Strathclyde in Scotland. 
He is also working, looking at the liquid biopsy. So I'm doing this, pretending I'm taking blood from myself, okay? So with a vial of blood, they are using this to predict whether or not they think a patient has glioma and good, should get follow-up testing. So glioma is uh, brain cancer. So most brain cancers are not uh, in the neurons. So because cancer is a disease of cell division and neurons generally don't divide, brain cancers are usually gliomas because those are the surrounding cells in your brain that support the neurons. And gliomas turn over and divide a lot. And so um, what, what um, Matt Baker's lab has done is that if you have a patient who is presenting with headaches, uh, persistent headaches, if you take a sample of their blood, so again, the liquid biopsy, clean it up to um, take out the serum, irradiate it with infrared light, subject it to machine learning algorithms, so you look at the, absor the absorption patterns right here, they can predict with 95% accuracy whether or not a patient should get follow-up testing with additional uh, clinical imaging methods, so it's CT scans, PET scans, et cetera. So notice they're not definitively diagnosing cancer here. They are stating whether or not a patient should, should go in for additional testing. So this is currently, um, Matt Baker has started his own company. So this is available uh, to patients in Scotland. It is not yet available uh, here in the United States. Okay, so let's switch gears just a little bit. We're gonna look now at solid tumors. So moving away from the liquid biopsy and we're gonna look at solid tumors. So very quickly, I wanted to discuss um, tumor margins. So I want you to think for a second about what it would be like to be a cancer surgeon, okay? Is everyone, right? Okay, so that'd be a very important and stressful job um, because when you're removing a, a malignant mass, you want to make sure you get the whole malignant mass out of a patient, right? So it can't, you don't wanna leave any cells behind that can, as we said, they can, they can continue to divide and proliferate. Okay, it only takes one cell. So you wanna get the whole mass out, but you don't wanna take more than you need to. So again, let's think about brain cancers. If you're a cancer surgeon, you don't wanna take more of someone's brain than you need to. So this is generally described by uh, talking about tumor margins, negative margins and uh, positive margins, and a cancer surgeon needs to get adequate margins around the malignant material such that uh, there's, there's no cancer uh, remaining. And so there are various different methods that are being worked on, molecular methods, to help pathologists make these kind of diagnoses. Some of this work is being done here at Ohio State. I'm gesturing to Professor Heather Allen. You want to wave to the crowd? There she goes. Okay. Um, so Professor Heather Allen, who is here in the Department of Chemistry, who is also working with Professor James Coe, also here at OSU in the Department of Chemistry. The two of them are using molecular methods, so spectroscopy, to be able to very nicely determine these tumor margins. So here we have the standard H and E slide. So here we have uh, tumor and non-tumor. And, and what Coe and Allen have been able to show is that with spectroscopic-based methods, again, looking at these vibrations of molecules, and different types of molecules are going to have uh, different absorbances, they can very nicely delineate this tumor margin, thereby helping uh, surgeons make these kind of uh, very challenging decisions. So very cool work happening here at OSU. Okay, there is also a push to figure out ways to take this into the operating room in real time, okay? So there's all the help you can give the pathologist making these delineations, making these differences. There are also some groups 
that are looking at ways to do this in real time while the patient is still in the operating room. The thought process here being that while the patient's under anesthesia, um, if you can make these assessments, you won't have to subject a patient to repeated surgery. So it's extremely demoralizing when a patient is told they had, they, you know, all the, the, this, uh, the cancer was not removed, you need to have an additional surgery. It also delays the start of therapy. So standard care for most carcinomas is surgery first, then followed by either cancer and or, um, or pardon me, uh, chemo and or radiation. If you have to repeat the surgery, that's at least a two to three week delay before the patient can start therapy. So for these reasons, if you can do real-time assessment with real-time interoperative diagnostic tools, it would be extremely um, helpful for these kind of challenges. And so there is a group uh, at um, Stanford, uh, even Rosenthal's group at Stanford, is using light-guided surgery. So these are using various types of probes. This is kind of similar to uh, with, with uh, PET scans, how people will, will have labeled sugar and things like that to be able to visualize the tumor. The difference here is that this is done during surgery. So the Rosenthal lab has used this entirely with uh, oral cancers. And so the patient five days out from the surgery will be given a, a drug intravenously so that there's then enough time for it to be able to find the tumor and fully label uh, the tumor site. And so in this case, you can see uh, here on the tongue, it helps then visualize the amount that uh, has to be removed. You can see the, the, the patient is happy that it was all taken out. Okay, um, so this is the uh, figure out of the original cancer research article that came out, I was gonna say last year, but no, that's two years ago now, isn't it? Okay, um, so this is the figure at the top. You can see here's the cancer patient, and again, there's the selective label, so they are using fluorescent labels attached uh, to panituximab. Panituximab is an antibody drug that recognizes a molecule that is produced on the surface of cancer cells called EGFR. Um, this uh, particular molecule is only found on cancer cells. Now, the disadvantage of it is that not all cancer cells express it, so this isn't a universal method, but still, if you have a type of cancer that does express EGFR, the panituximab will label it such that then it helps the surgeon to be able to localize that area. So you can see this is what the tongue looks like um, <clears throat> without the fluorescent imaging. This is with the fluorescent imaging to help visualize this, and then this is the overlay. And so this is happening right now They're at the clinical hospital associated with Stanford where they have patients coming in. They're assessing these tumor margins. At this point, everything is... Uh, uh, correlated and confirmed with a standard pathology, so H&E type staining, uh, but this is something they hope to, you know, uh, have available um, more widely uh, in the next few years. Okay, we'll switch gears slight, slightly and talk about the final way to be able to measure things. And the final way is a technique called mass spectrometry. This is what I do for a living, okay, so I weigh things for a living, uh, which again maybe doesn't sound uh, all that powerful, but Every item in the world has mass, and from that, you can learn a lot of information. So this is, the this is the time of year where many of us get on the bathroom scale in the morning, right? Okay, uh, and you get information that's maybe not so good, right? But it's information, right? Okay, so you can learn a lot from masses. And you can also discriminate different items based on their mass. So my eight-year-old son helped me come up with this example right, right here. Um, he suggested that an anvil and a feather are two things with very different masses. So if I tell you one of these is 100 pounds and one of these is two ounces, we can probably all guess which one's which, right? Right? Okay. 
All right, so now think about this in terms of molecules. If you have thousands of lipids present within your body, and each one of those lipids has a slightly different chemical composition, they potentially will have different masses. Sometimes they're the same mass, but we can, we can deal with that in other ways. So we, by using these differences in weight, we can differentiate people, molecules, lipids, all kinds of, of different things. So how do we do this? So I'm a chemist. I couldn't. I showed Hannah my slides on Friday, and I said, Hannah, I gotta show one equation, right? I'm a chemistry professor. So here's your one. I hope you don't mind. Here's here's your one equation for the night. Okay. So the simplest mass analyzer is something called the time of flight, and the time of flight is a type of mass analyzer where you give kinetic energy to a molecule. So at the beginning part of a, of a mass spectrometer, we ionize and we vaporize things. So we make them a gas, and then we add a charge to them. And then what we do is we accelerate them into some kind of mass analyzer. And in the case of the time of flight, we give every molecule the exact same kinetic energy. And kinetic energy is 1 half mv squared. Okay, so here m is mass, v is velocity. So if we consider, for example, down here, we've got a great big football player, we've got a small child, and I couldn't find a picture of a football player on roller skates, so I need you all to pretend just for one minute that he's got roller skates too, okay? You visualizing that? Yeah? Okay. So if I give them both the exact same push, who goes farther or who goes faster? I'm sorry, what was that again? Small child, right? Yeah, that's right. Same kinetic energy. And the reason is because if this is smaller, this has to be larger since everybody gets the same, right? Okay, so that's the basic concept of the time of flight mass analyzer. Everybody gets the exact same kinetic energy. We then push them into a vacuum and the smaller ones will reach our detector uh, faster, okay? So we're measure essentially we're measuring time. Analytical chemists are very good at measuring time, and from time we can infer the molecular weight of the different species. So this is being used, again, just to remind you, we're, we're looking at now real-time intraoperative diagnostic tools. One of the um, really cool developments that's going on right now in the world of mass spectrometry are handheld scalpels that are also mass spec ionization devices. So these devices right here, it's both a scalpel and a mass spec source on the front end. What you can do, and I'll show you a figure in just a second, is that as you are going along and cutting out the, the, the tumor, you are also making molecular measurements at the same time. There are two main groups in the world who are working on this. Dr. Zoltan Takats, who is at Imperial College in London. He's developed the eye knife. It has been commercialized by the company Waters. And so this is being, this is being used in clinical hospitals throughout the UK right now. Uh, here in the United States, Dr. Livia Everlin at the University of Texas, Austin, has developed another technology called the mass spec pen. They have slightly different ionization approaches, which is why both of them um, are, are uh, undergoing development, and they're both moving along uh, very rapidly. The way that this works is that if you have the tumor tissue and the surgeon is cutting along with the scalpel, at the same time making molecular measurements back to the mass spectrometer, the mass spectrometer has um, preloaded into it in a list of different masses that are known to correspond to lipids in a tumor versus lipids in normal tissue. And so as the surgeon is cutting along, you can see as the surgeon is cutting along in real time, they are also assessing the tumor margins. And in the case of Livia's group, they have been able to uh, correlate an auditory signal with uh, this measurement. And so what'll happen is as you're cutting along, for example, it'll go eh, eh, when you hit the tumor margin. In that way, 
they know, the surgeon will know it's time to stop cutting, okay? So the surgeon is given real-time information where they should stop as they're pulling, as they're actually cutting this out with the scalpel. So really um, amazing developments. Okay, so I'm gonna end, Hannah asked me to talk just a little bit about the work that I do in my own lab. We look a lot at molecular mechanisms of cancer, not so much at diagnostics, but we do have one project I wanted to tell you just a little bit about. Um, to do that, let me first uh, go over the concept of personalized medicine and then we'll look at the, the uh, research in my own lab. So personalized medicine, how many of you have already heard of this? A fair number of people, okay. So personalized medicine was first, uh, this term was first uh, coined by Leroy Hood. He is the founder of the Institute for Systems Biology. He's an analytical chemist, okay? Um, and he came up with the four Ps of personalized medicine, preventative, that medicine should be preventative, predictive, personalized, and participatory. And the general concept here is that for a long time, uh, patients were all given the exact same treatment, right? If there's a treatment that we know works, that patient, so for example, someone with um, myeloma would always be given uh, 7-3, that particular chemotherapy uh, regimen, regardless of um, their individual state. With uh, personalized medicine, there's now the recognition that we can get so much information from uh, all these various different tests, DNA sequencing, everything else, that couldn't we tailor the therapy a little bit better according to the person's molecular status? Okay, so use different therapies, hopefully, to do a better job uh, treating the patients. So my lab has been working in this area a little bit uh, using uh, patient-derived organoids. Patient-derived organoids are uh, biopsy samples that are taken from, from patients. So the patient will go in, uh, give a biopsy. That biopsy can be cut into as many as 12 different pieces. Those pieces can then be grown in cell culture, so similar to what we, we, we already talked about with, with cell culture and they will recapitulate uh, the organ from which they originated. So as I said, my lab works on colorectal cancer, so these are colorectal organoids. And so we have been working with a group at uh, the University of Southern California, uh, Shannon Mumenthaler's group, trying to develop mass spectrometric methods to help tailor therapeutics to specific patients, and specifically asking the question, can we use mass spectrometry to figure out whether or not a patient will metabolize a specific drug. So what you're looking at here are patient-derived organoids from an individual who was treated at USC's hospital. He had stage three colorectal cancer and he gave a biopsy for our research efforts. Uh, the Mumenthaler lab grew them into organoids and then treated them with the drug irenotecan. So this was a proof of concept study. We knew that uh, everyone would, would metabolize irenotecan quite nicely. Uh, you can see uh, these are um, imaging mass spec results showing the signal from irenotecan is moving into the organoids. You can see uh, this signal right here indicates that the drug has penetrated into the organoid. But much more importantly, using mass spectrometry, we can also detect some of the metabolites. So these are two metabolites of irenotecan. Irenotecan is given clinically to patients as what we call a prodrug. That means the uh, form that is given to the patient is inert. Once it's metabolized by the patient, it then has its activity. So this is the irenotecan signal, and importantly, we can detect two of the metabolites, in particular this one right here, SN38, that is the uh, bioactive uh, component. This is an extremely cytotoxic molecule that's produced uh, within the patient, and so this indicates that this individual could metabolize um, irenotecan. So as I said, this is a proof of concept study. Uh, we knew this would be a drug that would be metabolized, but we were establishing 
a methodology to be able to uh, evaluate other types of drugs that may or may not be uh, metabolized by individuals. And so in that way, um, I like to think of this as kind of the beginnings of uh, personal diagnostics. Okay, so that's pretty much everything I have for you today. Um, I think probably if I could anticipate one question that you're all gonna have is, uh, are these available yet? <laughs> Right? That's kind of what, yeah, that's what I kept on looking into as I looked at this. The answer is that none of these are available quite yet in um, widespread hospitals. I've tried to describe uh, where things stand for each of them um, as I've kind of gone through them. However, as we saw with the blood-based amniocentesis test, hopefully within the next few years, uh, these will become mainstream for cancer patients. So as I see it, the science is really there. We just need to get through uh, the rest of the, of the process to make this available to patients. So with that, I'll stop. Let me just quickly, this is my uh, research group. I have the privilege of working with 12 students here at OSU, students, postdocs, undergrads, and uh, they do a lot of the work. We work down in the biomedical research tower down in the med school, uh, and it's uh, a real privilege to get to do this kind of research. So I'll stop here, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Thank you. That was fantastic. Questions? Yes, sir. Um, from a broad perspective, mm -hmm. um, would you suggest that we are on the cusp of a revolution in uh, detecting and treating cancer, or would you say we're this is more incremental? In, okay. In so the question is, are we on the cusp of a revolution, or is this a little bit more uh, incremental? Um, I think if not for the Theranos situation that occurred in the last few years, are you guys familiar with Theranos, the blood testing company that promised all kinds of diagnostics from very, very pinpricks of blood? There was an HBO documentary on this last year. Um, uh, that, that scared a lot of people, right, because there was so much money invested in that and everyone was so very excited that I think right now everyone's a little bit more hesitant and wants to make sure that everything is, is absolutely verified. So my take on this as I was researching you know, all these various different methods, as I said, as I think the science is there and I think the bioinformatics is there, that's also a big part of it, but we might see a bit more delay in the regulatory process because of the, the Theranos situation. Yeah, good question. Yes, ma'am. So that's a wonderful question. So the question is, how can you find out about clinical trials uh, if you want to participate or if you have uh, a family member? So the, the James Center here on campus has a website that maintains all of those. Um, and so you can certainly go look at all of them. I believe you can also get on a mailing list so, uh, so that you can get monthly information. Besma, do you want to speak about that? So let me just repeat that because I'm the one mic'd. So uh, what Besma just said is that there's a website, clinicaltrials.org, uh, where all clinical trials in the United States, oh, sorry, pardon me, clinicaltrials.gov, thank you, um, where all clinical trials in the United States have to be, have to be posted. Yes, sir. You mentioned about routine 53. How about external forces, for example, uh, uh, the halogens outside, you know, mm. 
all this and teach the acts of children Oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so we have a, a, a question right here about external forces also yeah. that can contribute to cancer. So carcinogens in the environment, halogens, et cetera. Um, absolutely, all of those will, will impact. Um, those um, can cause additional mutations. So we, we talked a little bit about mutations. They can also change uh, the chemical microenvironment surrounding the cancer cells. So there's a lot of focus right now looking at uh, the specific chemical composition that surrounds the cell, that signals to the cell, and can cause all kinds of different changes. Yes. Yes. Uh, so there are ongoing uh, initial trials on CRISPR gene therapy. Mm -hmm. So a question here about um, CRISPR mechanisms. And um, so CRISPR is a gene editing tool that can allow you to alter uh, the, the, the human genome. Um, and so the question is, how does that impact uh, then the, the methods that we're talking about? Those, I think, are still a little bit more initial. Um, I mean, certainly CRISPR has gained an awful lot of attention, and there are a number of people around the world using it. That would be to alter um, the, the, the cells themselves to stop this from to, to stop the cancer from progressing, kind of similar to gene therapy um, a, a few decades ago. So I think that's still a, a little bit behind a lot of these diagnostic methods, but certainly there's an enormous amount of attention and interest in that. Yes. Yes, sir. What's taking place to give diagnostic earlier for cancers like pancreatic cancer, which my kind of symptoms showed you? So, so the question was, what about cancers like pancreatic cancer, which is um, very hard to diagnose early because there aren't many symptoms. It's an organ that's buried quite deep in the abdomen, so a lot of times patients won't, won't realize that. So for that one, the circulating free DNA, the liquid tests, are the ones that are gaining the most attention because those, so, the pan, so pancre, pancreas was one of the 20 organ sites that was evaluated by Grail, um, and so uh, those tumors would shed DNA into the bloodstream the same as any other. So with the liquid biopsy, uh, that's another way they could catch that. So that's, that's where the, the real hope in that area is. Yes? Uh, you said, this might be elementary and I don't get it, but cancer and aging are two sides of the oh. <laughs> um, So what, yes, so I, I, sorry, I said that rather. So, so pardon me, the, the question was when I was talking about P53 and adding P53 back into mice and that mice um, mice with more p53 age very quickly, and I made the the the, the comment and moved on very rapidly uh, that that cancer and aging are two sides of the same coin. Um, a lot of the the processes that are involved with uh, cell division and and aging are also the ones that get um, altered in in the cancer process. So a lot of those same processes. So it's, for example, the telomeres uh, shortening. That's a process that affects aging, but then also. Uh, can be uh, altered with cancer as well. I'm sorry, could you repeat that again? Uh, it happens faster if it's cam cancer. Uh, I'm sorry, what happens faster? The, the aging process? Um, that is a very interesting question. Um, that would be very difficult to parse out um, whether aging happens faster with, with cancer at the fundamental 
um, level. Uh, it's, it's, I said that because a lot of the, these uh, cellular mechanisms um, are going to be the same between the two processes. And so a lot of times uh, we find in the lab, like for the example with the, the P53 and the mice, um, that if you try to have some kind of, if you try to alter the molecular mechanisms that are associated with cancer, it often will affect the aging process in the organism. So the two seem to be intrinsically linked. Yes. Yes, there's, a, there's an analogy. So Azra Raza, uh, an oncologist at Columbia, has made the analogy that if you think about aging as a sands of time going through a, a, um, an, an hourglass, that those, those um, uh, grains of sand will accumulate over time as the, the person ages, and at a certain point it can all um, change. Uh, very rapidly, and uh, making that analogy to cancer, if that, if that helps at all. Yes? Uh, is there a way that uh, those of us who may be college educated, but mm -hmm. certainly have not a background in science, can follow your research or the oh. research of uh, your department? Yes, so we, we uh, so for example, my lab maintains a website. Um, and so we post a lot of our uh, recent uh, manuscripts and things like that. Um, my students maintain a Twitter account. I don't tweet, <laughs> but they know how to do that. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we try to, to publicize uh, the things that we do. Yes, so the, the question is about affordability, and I, I, I have no sense of that. I, I do not have expertise in regulatory affairs or how insurance works in this country, and yes, I, I had those questions myself as I was looking at all these methods, whether or not these methods can be accessible. I think for the, the blood tests, hopefully, right, because taking blood is, is not that bad, um, although you take the blood and then there's an awful lot of DNA sequencing that has to occur. So we are, we're almost at the point of the $1,000 genome, almost there. It only took 20 years. Yes, Modesta. So the, so the question, sorry, I, I realized I've been forgetting to repeat the questions. So the question was, uh, getting back to this question of P53, uh, so um, the fact that elephants have 20 copies, humans have one, whales have none, mice have one. Did I remember to tell you that mice have one? Okay, good. Um, so, um, and so the question, so Modesta's question is getting at, are we putting too much emphasis on P53? Um, I, I, I think there's, as I said, many, many mechanisms going on. So if you look, oh, this is cool. The woolly mammoth has 14 P53s, okay? <laughs> there's this whole huge article on, on um, numbers of P53s in, in ancestors. Yeah, so the woolly mammoth has 14. So modern elephants have actually evolved to have more P53 over time, right? Um, I think 
the way I look at it is that is the mechanism, the evolutionary mechanism that has evolved for that species to be able to, to fight cancer. I don't know how else to put it, or to, to overcome uh, the development of cancer. Um, I, I think different organisms um, evolve in different ways uh, for this particular challenge. Uh, and, and humans have gone some other route. So I, I, perhaps that's not a very satisfying question or answer, but. There's a lot of different factors involved in this. All right, let's take one more. Yes. Could you speak a little bit about Hogarth and the Sure, yes. So Cologuard is the at-home uh, fecal test for colon cancer. So this is one where, as I joked uh, halfway through my talk, there are certain spe uh, specimens that we don't mind giving up. And so giving away um, uh, fecal uh, matter, uh, most of us, yeah, we're okay with that. And so uh, the concept here is that uh, the fecal material will contain cells that can slough off from the colon tumor, and they will have... Um, uh, various different biomarkers um, for, for cancer, or specifically colon cancer. And so the Cologuard has become available in the last, I think, three years or so. You can hear it advertised now on NPR. I can't remember off the top of my head what the accuracy of the test is. I want to say it's in the, in the 90s, but I... 92%, okay. I was going to say I, didn't, I couldn't remember that off the top of my head. But no, it works extremely well, and so it's a nice alternative then to, to colonoscopy. Um, so it's, it's a nice uh, complementary method, and it hits a lot of the criteria that, that we were talking about in terms of uh, being you know, non-invasive and relatively fast and, and um, very valuable from that standpoint. But. All right. Well, let's thank Amanda again. Thank you. Thank you.